Welcome back to Conscious Pathways. I'm your host, Brittany Carey. Today, I have an amazing guest for us. I have Dr. Erica Dallas joining us. She's here to talk about culturally responsive, relevant, and sustaining pedagogy, uh, particularly in early childhood education. We really dive in deep into culture, into inclusive practices, into diverse classrooms. We dive into some of the challenges in implementing these type of pedagogies in the classroom. Um, as always, we wrap up the conversation talking about how we reimagine education, what that future of education looks like. I am so excited to share this conversation with you. I know I learned a bunch just during this conversation. So let's get right into it. Welcome, welcome to the podcast. Today I have Dr. Erica Dallas with me today. Thank you. <laughs> is that the first time that someone's like officially addressed you this way? It is. It is the first time. But for the record, you can call me Erica, but Dr. Dallas okay. sounds really good. <laughs> it is the first it time. It's also new and fresh. Yes, yes. You just you just did it on Wednesday, right? Yes. Yes. Nice. Yes. I needed a moment for it to all soak in and I posted it on Facebook, and but I've, I haven't heard anyone say it verbally, except for mm. during my um, final mm. oral defense. They said it at the end, but actually, you know, like someone outside of school, you, mm -hmm. you're the first. You're the first. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, for the audience to know, do you want to tell us a little bit about what we are talking about? <laughs> So we're talking about culturally responsive, relevant, and sustaining pedagogy um, mm -hmm. in preschool settings and on, matter of fact, in, in all settings, but I specialize in early childhood education. Mm -hmm. So that setting would, would specifically be like a preschool setting or ECE setting, um, child care mm -hmm. settings. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so one question I always want to start out with my guests um, is to really kind of get to know you, get to know how you got started, is to just tell me a little bit about your journey in education. What who or what inspired you to join the education field? I would say, I think that everything happened for a reason. So it all started when I was younger. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and I went to public schools in Cleveland, Ohio. And so my experience in the public school system was really, really hard. Um, mm. There was a lack of, of cultural relevancy of my culture. I identify as African-American Black, so going to schools, it was just a lack of, and I didn't understand that until I got older and I started experiencing university life. And I realized that there was a void when I was younger, and that's why I didn't excel academically. And also mm -hmm. my mom worked at the Boys and Girls Club, so she was in, in the education department. So I used to go to work with her. And I always wanted to just, I either wanted to be a police officer or a teacher. And I, uh, I studied criminal justice and it just wasn't for me. So I decided that working with children as early on before they even get into the K-12 system is the best way to approach their, a positive approach to their learning and acquiring these skills that they need to succeed in school because I didn't have that. So mm -hmm. I guess it all stemmed from me growing up and not having something. And then as I got older, I realized the void and I never wanted anyone else to experience that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know when I think back, kind of, kind of similar, when I think back to my early education experiences, I think even throughout my entire like kind of K through 12 experience, I think I only had two 
black teachers and one was a black woman and that was that was it yeah, see? <laughs> that was all i had that was all i saw you know um, even when i did have black teachers they mm -hmm. were not i think they were like sort of programmed into doing a specific thing because they were the only black teacher at the school mm -hmm. so they had to in order to keep your job in order to stay they had to fit this kind of criteria and and that's what I experienced. My my first negative experience was with an African-American teacher who really didn't identify with her culture, her ethnicity, mm. her race, her nationality. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's that like, that's hard and it's really confusing, especially as a young person, yeah. you know, and you're coming into recognizing your own kind of racial identity and what that right. means and what that looks like. And you're getting a lot of, especially as a, as a child, you get a lot of that information from the your peers and the adults around you. So you're really doing a lot of observations and really learning from how other people are interacting and how other people are talking about it. And when you have those experiences, one, it's really confusing. It is. <laughs> as a child, you're like, wait a minute. And it sets the stage. Yes. It sets yes, the stage for the rest the of your life. Those experiences that you can remember, um, it mm -hmm. sets the stage for everything else that you experience in the school environment. So she set the stage because I'm, I'm still able to remember those instances and those situations. And then from there, it just went downhill. I had all the rest of my teachers, except for um, one, I had all um, Caucasian teachers. And so mm -hmm. it just went downhill from there, but she set the stage and, and I'm like, hey, you identify as me. You look like me, what, mm -hmm. what? Not really look like me because I'm really <laughs> high yellow, but, <laughs> but you know, you know, you know how that goes. So it kind of, it kind of, you know, put a little void in my life and mm. it, it, it lasted, it lasted for a long time. Yes. And would you say that most of your kind of experiences in either K through 12 education or, you know, before college and all of that, would you say most of that was in kind of PWIs or primarily predominantly white institutions? Yes. So I was a part of the, I don't know if your listeners know what this was, but I was a part of the busing system. And so the busing system was set in place to integrate schools with African-American students. And then in some places they would integrate schools with Caucasian or white students, depending, you know, depending on who signed up. But then they had some that were forced, forced bust. Well, I was a part of the, the forced and sign up. My mom didn't really understand, but she signed me up. So I was a, what, one of those students who got bused an hour and a half to the west side of um, Ohio, to the white neighborhoods. I went to a Clare U Westrop and it was all white school. So it was a cultural shock for me. All of the teachers were white. And I would say my second year that the experience that all of the, the African-American students that got bus there had, it was just horrible. It was horrible. It was horrible. Mm -hmm. um, we could realize that it was horrible. The teachers could realize that it was horrible. So they started bringing in my second year, they started bringing in African-American teachers. And so then my second experience with an African-American teacher was a male, Mr. Pugh, and he was down to earth. He, he let us know, I know what you're going through. I mm -hmm. I've had to live through this. I I've experienced this. We're going to do this. We're going to make it. He was so positive and he was amazing. And then he, and then he got terminated. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> so no. yeah, yeah. So my experiences were all with white teachers and I, I'm honestly, they were very heart wrenching. Yeah. Very heart wrenching. 
Yeah. Well, that's, um, yeah, that's understandable. I think that kind of segues into kind of our, our topic for this today's episode is that culturally relevant responsive sustaining pedagogy. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about how kind of your discovering of this, how you kind of found this type of pedagogy and kind of started connecting with it and was like, wait a minute, this yeah. is the thing. <laughs> <laughs> right? So when I, I moved to California, so I'm, my background is military. So I'm a military okay. spouse. So when I moved to California, it was a cultural shock for me. I I've saw like so many different things and I've experienced so many different things around the world. And then when I got to California, I'm like, wait a minute, this is really different, really different. Mm-hmm. So once we got here, like I said, it was a cultural shock. And I, I started to like wanting to engage in cultures. I've always loved diversity. I've always loved culture, but I've only been like boxed into certain cultures because I wasn't exposed mm-hmm. to it. So once we moved here, there was, it was like a huge melting pot of beauty. There was so many beautiful people, so many different people. And so I started to acquire new friends. I started eating new foods, going new places, learning Spanish, learning Tagalog, learning Mandarin, learning all types of different languages. And I'm like, wow. And so then when I signed back up for school to work on my doctoral degree, I started hearing about culturally responsive. I'm like, what's, what's that? So it was like 2017. So I'm like, what is that? But we moved to California in 2014. So I got to experience diversity more so in 2014. And so then when I went back to school, we started hearing about culturally responsive. And then as I started looking into the literature, I started hearing about culturally relevant, but there was nothing about culturally sustaining until Mm -hmm. later on. And so as I'm looking and I'm reading the literature, I'm like, I've been living this. I've needed this. My students needed this because I was teaching in a classroom. So mm-hmm. I, I just dove deep into it. When I say dove deep, I have six bookshelves in my home. Field, all of these books have to say culture. <laughs> they have to say culture. <laughs> or they say ethnicity. Or they say something about religious studies. Mm-hmm. So I started to just really build my repertoire, build, build up my brain, and, and try to understand how these two terms, culturally responsive and culturally relevant, could help my students. But there was a void. So every book that I read said K-12. It very rarely said preschool or early childhood education. And so that was my dissertation was on educators' experiences affirming culturally responsive, relevant, and sustaining pedagogy. Mm. So I wanted to see who was doing this. Is anyone doing this in preschool? Is anyone doing this in early childhood education? And it was so sparse. It was hard for me to find people who were doing this. And if they were doing it, they didn't really put the whole, the whole, uh, I guess, essence of it, the whole essence of it, the whole relevancy, the whole responsive and the whole sustaining. So I would say that just the experience of culture alone and working in the early childhood education field really drove me to wanting to, to, explore and to implement it in my classrooms. Mm -hmm. And as I started doing research, that's when I found out about the Django Paris culturally and Samueline culturally Mm -hmm. sustaining pedagogy. And I'm like, wait a minute. So in education, we're always trying to change our students. But what Django is saying and Aline is saying is that we need to sustain who they are, keep what they are and add to their repertoire, add to who they are. We shouldn't have to change anyone. 
because that's what makes you beautiful. That was that's what makes you who you are. That's what makes you that independent individuality, right? Yeah. So I, I just felt like in my my thesis and my dissertation, you can't have one without the other. You have to have responsive, relevant, and sustained. All three have to go together. So yeah. I, that gave me chills. I was like, ooh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes to all of that. Yes. Because in my in my experience, I've heard a lot about um, you know culturally relevant, culturally responsive, but that as you're mentioning, that sustaining sustaining portion of it, I haven't really heard much of that, and no. that's not a narrative that I've been super familiar with. But yeah. as you're talking, it makes so much sense. Yeah, um, in my and there's training, so much more to it. There's so much more to it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when we're talking about you know diversity and culture and all these different really amazing things that are necessary there's a lot of nuance to the conversation as well mm -hmm. you know as we kind of just mentioned it's not just about having a teacher that looks like you yes it's amazing to have teachers who reflect your experience and it's yeah. amazing to see that um, but it's not just that alone right there's so much more nuance and there's so much more things that are deeper than just that surface level yes. and that sustainable portion of it is Yes. Yes. So integral. Absolutely. Absolutely. I um I have to say that w doing like the interviews and, and talking to other teachers, even though you, you know we're in a classroom, like in my classroom, there are all Hispanic students, and I would say mm -hmm. there was maybe out of the twenty two students that we served in my classroom, one of them may have been African American, and then three may have been identified as white, and mm -hmm. so the rest were Hispanic. I, as a teacher, said to myself, you're studying culturally responsive, relevant, sustaining. What are you going to do? Mm -hmm. So I learned Spanish. I had a parent, actually, she would stay with me from 4.30 p.m. till 6 o'clock p.m. and teach me common phrases in Spanish. She would also, you know, tell me about her experiences and I would tell her about my experiences until we got to know each other. And I felt like that was the only way to reach and teach my students was to make sure that I was equipped with some of their cultural artifacts, some of the things that they they experienced in their life or that they spoke in their life or that they ate in their life. We had times where we would have potlucks and the parents would bring food and I would bring food from, from my culture and we would just sit and eat. Did I eat everything? No, because it wasn't for me, but I, I engaged and I enjoyed mm -hmm. it. Also, they're you know working in the classrooms you see teachers who are they're like i'm culturally responsive and we're like okay well tell me tell me how you're culturally responsive and so when someone says culturally responsive now for me i i think of it as all three so mm -hmm. when a teacher would tell me they're culturally responsive they tell me how tell me how you're culturally responsive mm -hmm. they're like well i put posters up in my classroom i have books mm -hmm. i play music mm -hmm. okay do you did you really get to know the students in your classroom did you really get to know their community did you really get to know what music they really listen to instead of stereotyping them that's implicit bias did you really put these posters up of africa and have have any of you guys ever been to africa in this classroom have your students ever been are they identified as african you know and so we would just like stage classrooms we're staging classrooms instead of making it really about students cultures and i found that it's because of implicit and explicit biases teachers either Absolutely. just don't want to acknowledge it don't don't agree with it so they don't incorporate it or they feel like that's raunchy why would i do that in here but that if you want to classify it as raunchy mm -hmm. <laughs> some music is a part like blurry latin billings hip-hop music is my culture mm -hmm. that's my yep. culture you yep. know 
unrelated, but I have been loving more of like the the early childhood kind of hip hop influenced songs that have been coming out. <laughs> Grace Youth Corner is just yes. Grace Youth Corner. It's stuck in my head. Wait a minute now. <laughs> it's stuck in my head. My nephew lives with me, and mm-hmm. the other day he was listening, and I just started dancing. He was like, um, "What was it? Oh." Good morning. Today's gonna be a great day. Good morning. Nothing's yeah. gonna get in your way. Nothing, nothing. <laughs> and I look, he's one years old, and I look, and he's dancing, literally doing the steps. Yes. <laughs> and it embeds, right? That's yes. the culture. It embeds into your subconscious and it becomes yep. reality. And that's it, how it, it is. feels and it feels so affirming too. I, I I hear those things and I think about, you know, we didn't, back in my day. <laughs> Mine either. I didn't we have didn't, it. We didn't have these. And even like when I was, you know, in the classroom more often teaching, we didn't really have these kinds of preschool songs. You know, it was kind of that very kind of stereotypical, very, you know, which is still great. I mean, we are the dinosaurs. It's a bop. I, I, I love it. <laughs> I like that song too. You know, it, it's a bop. We love it. Um, <laughs> But to know that we can have, you know, ABC songs that just kind of have a little bit of that, just that background to it, a little bit of that swagger to yes. it that I'm used to. And it just, again, Grace's Corner, I played that um, <laughs> I Love My Hair song for my niece. And she was just like, she was just dancing Jansen and Groove. And she was like, this is nice. And Doesn't I was like, it make I you feel this. good? Like before we were taught to be ashamed of our hair, to mm-hmm. be ashamed of our weight, to be ashamed. Yeah. I have, for the listeners, I have vitiligo. So I used to be darker and I remember like people like joking about me and talking about me and being very, very rude. I saw mm-hmm. Gracie's corner. I'm like, she has a girl in there with vitiligo. What? Yes. <laughs> so as an adult, I'm like, yes. <laughs> we, love, we love to see it. It feels good to see that. Even as an adult, it feels really good to see it. I love those videos um, of like deaf kids who will go to Disneyland and you'll see the characters signing with them and you just see this big smile on their face. Yeah. Like, wait, you mean Donald Duck can sign to me? Mickey yeah. Mouse can sign to me? Yeah. And it's those those types of experience that just feel so affirming and feel mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm seeing. Oh, like yeah. I belong. Now imagine um, integrating that into a classroom. Imagine, imagine the impact. The impact is, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal when, when we're able to do it and you see the students' faces and you see, you know, the parents being able to engage in a very meaningful way. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating and beautiful experience. And it's one of those things of why, why not? It is. I have <laughs> why to would tell we you, not want? I had um, four generations of children in my classroom. And oh. the mom told me that the reason she brought all four generations of her kids was because she said, I've never seen a child cry when I took them out of the classroom. She said, I cr- they usually cry when I leave them. She has a lot of kids. She has seven. So she's like, every time I left my children in the schools, they would cry for me to come and get them. It was just hard. She's like, but I leave my son with you and he's crying when I come and pick him up. He doesn't want to leave. And he goes, Miss Erica, help. And she said that touched my heart. (laughs) She's like, I want to know what she's in here doing. Is she giving my Mm -hmm. child candy? What's going on? So (laughs) she said, I spent those. She's she's like, I know that you thought that I was coming because I didn't trust you. She's like, I was coming because I wanted to see why he loved you so much. Mm-hmm. And she said, and then I fell in love with you. I'm like, oh, and she said, that's why you got all four generations of my kids because I trust you. 
and because you you make them feel comfortable to be who they are you don't tell them no and if you do tell them no you give them a reason why it's a no but it's never really that solid no it's a not right now not right Mm -hmm. now you know so it just made me feel good and that was like my second year teaching and that's when I started doing like the culturally responsive and relevant but it made a difference. It made a difference in the community. It made a difference with my parents. It made a difference with my students and even the teachers, even mm-hmm. the teachers, they started to shift their train of thought and, and they started to see that they had some biases, you know, and, and they're like, Erica, what do we do about this? One of my teachers, she's really religious, right? She's really religious. And she's like, I'm not going to read a book about two parents being same sex. And I'm like, oh, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. If a kid brings it in, if a kid brings yeah. it into the classroom, you're you're gonna hurt him and tell him no. Yeah. And that's his reality in his home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've had some challenges with the culturally responsive, relevant, and sustaining portion of it. Yes. Yeah. And that that brings me to a lot of the dialogue that I'm hearing in education right now. Um, a lot of that kind of general pushback against you know this type of topics in classrooms and inclusivity and diversity in classrooms. I think the mentality is that educators are bringing all of this in and, you know, we're telling kids that they have to grow up and be gay and all these other different things when that's really not the reality. That's not the reality. <laughs> that's, that's not the reality no. of what we're doing. I, you know, I have to fight with the kids on a regular basis to stand in line. So yeah. <laughs> you think I have the, the fact that you think I have that much power. Right. Control, Calm bodies. <laughs> Calm bodies. Walking feet, my friends. Walking yeah. feet. <laughs> you know, like, it, it takes me several months to get them to put things away where they belong. So. The picture is right there, kids. Come on. The picture's on the shelf. <laughs> Go put it where the picture is. <laughs> so, yeah, we don't have that much power in sway. No, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Um, not at all. But then it goes to that inclusivity piece because I remember working in a classroom and I did have, you know, it was at a Jewish school and we had you know, so many different colors of children and so many different families of children. And, you know, we had children with this beautiful kind of olive skin tone and these beautiful curly hair. Um, And all the pictures in the classroom were of, you know, white Jewish children. Um, And all our books were of like white Jewish children with like one one mom and one dad and the 2.5 babies. And that was the reality of what these kids were looking at. But what about, you know, my child in my classroom that has two dads? Yeah. You know, what are we telling them about what a family looks like? What are we telling them about what being Jewish looks like? You know, know, all these unsaid things. You know, that DAP, that developmentally appropriate practice really comes into play. That book really needs to be redefined, reevaluated and rewritten. I think as as we experience different things in life, we need to update. We need to change. We're not asking educators to change who they are interpersonally when they go outside of the classroom. But when you come inside the classroom, you're putting on a different hat. You're not, you're, you don't necessarily have to agree with it. Just like you don't agree with everything that's in our textbooks. You don't agree with the way that they tell you how to do math. You find another way to do it. So why not find another way to make a child feel comfortable or to make a child feel loved or to make a child not feel alienated. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to just understand how you approach things and how you do things. And not everything is for everyone. Like I don't eat meat. So mm-hmm. for me, in my mind, I'm like, oh, that's disgusting, right? But when I go into yeah. the classroom, they tell me I have to taste it. 
because that's a family style dinner right there. You put it up to your mouth and pretend like you're eating it. So I pretend like I'm eating it. I find a way to do it. I don't mm-hmm. eat it. I don't swallow it. But I, I, I go, oh, it looks so good. Smell it. Wow. It's, it's nourishing, huh? So I find a way. I don't eat it, though. So is it really that hard? Is it really that hard? Is it really? <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. Um, so I know that you've done a lot of research around um, what's the acronym for it? Because I think you said it was CRISP or... I made that. Yeah, okay. I, made I made that one up. So I call it CRISP, Culturally Responsive okay. Relevant Sustaining Pedagogy, C-R-R-S-P. I made okay. it up. I, I coined it. Okay. <laughs> so okay. I call it CRISP because it's so fresh. It's so invigorating. It's like food for thought. It's something that you need in your life. It's something that you need as an educator in your classrooms. Mm-hmm. So I call it CRISP because it's CRISP. It's a CRISP topic. I- Okay. It feels good to hear. It feels good to say. It feels good to experience. I love it. It does. I am for the It does. It does. So I know in your, you know, dissertation, you've been talking uh, to educators who are either, is it all everyone who has been implementing a CRISP type study or someone who who, wants to? Who has been, some of them knew, some of them didn't know, um, but they've been in a preschool setting and they've been implementing CRISP. Um, okay. but not entirely. So when we say implementation, like my studies found that it's not in its entirety because there's so much more to it. And again, like you said, sustaining is new and fresh to you. It's same mm-hmm. with them. They're like, what's sustaining? I'm like, you're actually doing it, but you don't know that you're doing it, which was yeah. that questionnaire at the beginning that I gave them just to gauge to see if they were doing the relevant responsive and sustaining. Cause I knew there were going to be a lot of people who didn't understand that sustaining portion or the relevant portion. They only mm-hmm. really would focus on the culturally responsive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even in like the, the vocabulary of it, right? Like it tells you that there needs to be more like, we can't just be responsive to yeah. culture. Like it exists all around us. It is a part of everything that we do. And and I always say in my trainings, you know, you don't go into the classroom and just like shed your culture off and just yes. go into the classroom as a blank slate of like <laughs> nothingness. And the same thing, your students don't do that either. You walk around with your culture. It, it yeah. goes with you wherever you go. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you just kind of carry that on your back. So, you know, why would we not want to not only just, be responsive to it. Like, yes, we should be responsive, but also like, how are we being sustaining to our cultures? Yeah. You know, how are we being relevant? How is our curriculum being relevant to very our rarely and is our culture? it? Very mm-hmm. rarely is it. You, you have teachers who they, they say, you know, the curriculum is a certain way. This is the way that we do it. I can't modify it. Well, yeah, you can modify it. You have to learn how to modify it for every student. That's a part of differentiating instruction is to mm-hmm. be able to modify your curriculum to make to meet to meet the needs of all of your students. So you have some students that are tactile. You have some mm-hmm. students that are, are visual. You have some students that are auditory and so on. So how are you modifying? That's just the same as culture. So mm-hmm. how are you modifying to meet the needs of the students? So you mean to tell me that when you're you're saying you're differentiating, you can't include a book with a, an African American student in there or a Chinese student in there? Are they, they don't make books like that? They do. That's a part of being culturally responsive, relevant, and sustaining. If a student, mm-hmm. if you don't have it, a student brings it in, then you read it. You talk about mm-hmm. it. You discuss it. If a student comes and they're having a hard time because they're having issues at home, you sit there and you talk to them. That's a part of being culturally responsive. You also put students in the driver's seat 
of their own academic education and experiences. You let them be who they are and you shift your thinking and you shift your environment. You shift the way you are as an educator to meet them. A lot of a lot of the teachers say, I have 22 students. How can I do that? That's hard. How You expect me to change all of my toys out? You expect me to change my walls to meet all the cultures? You expect me to change my music? Well, if you are getting to know the families and you're engaging with the families, guess what? Like you said, their culture is on their back. It comes with them everywhere that they go. Yep. It doesn't mean you have to do all of that, but you should do some mm-hmm. of that. But they can bring it in too. They can tell you who they are. You can spend a little time mm-hmm. with them. They can bring some music in. You check it out, make sure it's developmentally appropriate for the students. Or you mm-hmm. find kids bop in yeah. that music musical um, yeah. tone or music name, and you mm-hmm. integrate it into the classroom. It, it doesn't shift that far away from the truth of the song. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of the educators that I've experienced and that I've interviewed, they they don't understand that what they're doing or they don't want to do it mm-hmm. or they don't know how to do it. Yeah. I think that's the biggest one that I hear when I'm out doing trainings. I get questions like, you know, they'll go to a training and they'll get information, especially even like about anti-bias curriculum, which I like for the most part. There are, I have some problems with it, but <laughs> I have some things that I would edit about it, but overall I think, you know, it's a great framework. Um, but you know, when I have people there asking these questions, like, okay, this is great information, but like, how do I do that in the classroom? I think some, because it's, because it's something like kind of new, we just think it's something you have to like really actively do and you have to do all this, you have to learn and do all these different things. And it's like, not necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, one don't... of the teachers was like, I'm not going to fake the funk. I'm like, fake the funk. She's like, yeah, that's like me being something I'm not. I'm like, it's not about you faking the funk here, lady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, it's just it's about expressing that empathy that compassion and showing a genuine interest in the the people in your classroom right building that classroom community and that's exactly what it is your classroom is a community of people together so you have your students and their families again they're carrying that cultural component of them on their back they're learning a lot just by being in the presence of other cultures and other Mm -hmm. things and really that number one big thing that you can just start to do in your classroom is just be curious. Yeah. You can just start asking questions. Yeah. You know what? I had this for dinner last night. What did you eat for dinner last night? What does it taste like? Let's talk about it. What does it taste like? What did you go? Tell me about that. Mm -hmm. Like, what did you guys do there? Or Mm -hmm. like, and then sometimes, you know, I think one of the biggest issues too, that we're seeing in the classrooms is this religious aspect. So our, most of the schools here in California and even in Ohio, and I used to live in uh, Chicago, you couldn't talk about religion. and mm-hmm. But you have some of the students that come into our classrooms is so deeply embedded. Mm-hmm. And so how do you not talk about it? How I had a, a student who was Muslim and he had to pray at a certain time. And so mm-hmm. that's a part of his religion, right? Yep. Or spiritual practice. So how do yep. I say, no, I'm not going to say no. Yeah. So if we allow him to do that, then we should allow little Bobby to talk about where he went on Sunday to the mm-hmm. church, you know, but yeah. they, they really shun away from that religious aspect. Mm-hmm. But that's a part of culture. Like I was raised Baptist and then Pentecostal, then Christian, then back to Baptist. <laughs> so that comes with all of it comes with me. Mm-hmm. How do you tell me that I have to shut that off? 
Yep. Yeah. It's yeah. It's 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 an interesting conversation because I think it does. It, people like to shut it off, or they don't like to talk about certain religions, and that's kind of the one thing in anti-bias too, where religions come to play. And it's like, well, you know, we live in the United States. It's primarily Christian, and that's yeah. primarily what our holidays are centered around. And mm-hmm. our, you know, we get you know winter break, and that's around Christmas, right? Yeah. Uh, we don't really get a break during Ramadan, and that's a yeah. really big I celebrate Kwanzaa. Yeah. And so there's, you know, there's all these different things. And so why are we not able to kind of talk about that? We, I mean, part of, part of this practice I really see is just looking at our cultures and they're, they're going to exist, right? Like your culture does not have to be the same as mine and it's allowed to exist. You're allowed to, you know, believe and express in your ways. And I'm allowed to believe and express in my ways. And I think the primary idea here is to just be able to show that appreciation show and and uh, model that curiosity that cultural humility for yeah. other people and really just ask genuine questions that's a really easy way to get started you don't need any extra materials you don't need to go out and buy anything you don't yeah. need to read all these like heavy dense textbooks the yeah. first thing you can do is just start with that curiosity <laughs> ask some start so I was talking to uh, another scholar and researcher and uh, a professor of mine, mm-hmm. and she was like, well, what would you suggest, Erica? Like, how do you suggest um, a teacher actually approach this? And I think, mm-hmm. well, not that I think I know, and, and you said uh, anti-bias training. I think mm-hmm. that a lot of the educators come into our classrooms, even beyond preschool, K-12 schools, they have a lot of biases, explicit mm-hmm. and implicit, right? They, they're just yep. there. And so- how do we screen our educators? How do mm-hmm. we how do we know that they're not bringing this into our classrooms? How do we screen mm-hmm. them to see if they're biased or if they're racist or if they have something that's going to get in the way of them teaching a certain curriculum or incorporating mm-hmm. culturally responsive, relevant, and sustaining? We can train you all day, but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you're going to do it. We need some some responsibility measures like are you really doing it all right let me see that you're doing it show me how you're doing it and now we're going to train you every three months to make sure that you understand what it is why it is and how it is Mm -hmm. you know it's just there's no you know like the department of education says that we have to have certain trainings to to maintain Mm -hmm. our teacher credential or to to maintain you have to have a certain amount of hours to maintain your certification Mm -hmm. why is that not mandated you mandate me to take CPR. Mm-hmm. Why don't you mandate me to incorporate things like culturally responsive, relevant, and sustaining pedagogy? Mm-hmm. I think it should be mandated that teachers take training like every three months and they're screened before they come into this field for racism, bias, implicit bias, explicit bias. Mm-hmm. But we don't Absolutely. have that. We, we don't. And it's, it's hard. It's heart wrenching sometimes because you do. You know, I've been in classrooms and I've observed practices. And yeah. you know, again, teachers. If you have an, an internal bias, bias, a lot of people aren't really aware of it. They're just kind of going through their life, not being fully aware that even they have this bias or yeah. they're treating students this way. Um, that one study, the Eyes Movement study, where they they asked you know the educators to find the, the student that was misbehaving. Yes. And what they were doing was like tracking their eyes, and like every almost every teacher looked at the was little, watching little, the little, little black, black boy. boy. Yeah. yeah. And was looking for that looking for that challenging risky behavior from that student. Yeah. And again, you wouldn't even be aware of that. You wouldn't even be thinking that that's you know something that 
you would do. You know, I know I've had to uh, confront my own biases in so many different ways. And each time I've been like, whoa, okay, <laughs> yeah. let's take a step back. That is a bias that I did not know I had. Yeah. <laughs> We've got a little bit of work to do and it's not easy work by any means. You know, it's uh-huh. not easy work to do. Um, but I can tell, I can 100% say that I am a better teacher. The more that I work on my biases, the yes. more that I take that step back and look at my own identity, all of my trainings, my, when I go into anti-bias type of trainings, they all start with, I don't even talk about the bias yet. I don't even talk about that stuff yet. I just talk about identity and I just focus yes. on the individuals in that classroom and that individuals in that, that, you know, room, let's talk about your identity. Let's talk you know about what? you first. <laughs> How can I know who you are if I don't know who I am? And you have that in a lot of the African-American community because mm-hmm. of, of everything that's happened in our in our past, right? It just mm-hmm. resurfaces and we still live in it. We're still experiencing it. A lot of us don't, I don't know how to identify, don't know who, I'm not, I'm not saying identify as I'm African-American, I'm black, but mm-hmm. tell me who you are. I am smart. I am educated. I am bold. I am beautiful. I am courageous. I come from, my parents were born in Atlanta, Georgia, you know, like yep. dig deep. I had to really find myself and wound up finding myself in the corner, crying like a little baby, releasing all this trauma. Mm-hmm. And once I found myself, that's when I came into this education field. I was able mm-hmm. to to be able to tell people who I am and to accept who they were because it adds mm-hmm. to me. It adds, who yeah. you are adds to me. I get to learn more stuff, experience more food. Not everything is for me, but at least I can mm-hmm. say I tried it and I still respect yeah. it. It's just not oh, gonna yeah. something I'm going to do every day. But you have teachers who don't know who they are they don't know Mm -hmm. who they are yeah and that that makes it a lot trickier to do this work right to lead with authenticity and lead with that vulnerability and lead with that empathy and curiosity right again I know that I'm a better teacher the more kind the more of this kind of work I continue to do the more work that I do internally Mm -hmm. on my own self right because in the beginning of my teaching journey it wasn't great, you know, like most people aren't, you know, great the first year you start. There's a lot of learning that we do in those first couple of years. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, it's one of those, one of those fields that we do, you do some observations um, through like your training, but it's nothing like, you know, this is your classroom. You do the thing now and you're like, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I find like a lot of the classrooms are so controlled. They're so controlled. Like yeah. see, teachers, really don't have a sense of independency in their classrooms. Mm-hmm. And if they do, they're like sneaking to do it or, you know, it's these, mm-hmm. it depends on where you go. Like it's so controlled. It just doesn't make any sense, which is I've, I'm like, I have to certain places that I've worked. I'm like, I gotta go. I gotta go. <laughs> they're like, nah, you can't have this book. Or you come into your classroom. You're like, what happened here? And they're like, Oh, I took all that stuff out. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. You took my, my, American, I'm not American, my um, African flag out, but you left the American flag, but that's part of who I am. Like, I know it. I know my history. I know Mm -hmm. my ancestors. I know. Mm -hmm. So I just find that it's just in the classrooms, you you very rarely can do certain things. You very rarely can say Mm -hmm. certain things. It's just like so robotic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's getting more complicated it's depending on where we work, especially in, in California, we have different designations of, you know, schools and all of that. And it, 
it is kind of confusing. It's it's great in some ways because parents who can't afford it, and that's the that's the big asterisk there, right? Parents mm-hmm. who can't afford it have a lot of options for different pedagogies. Do you want to go to Reggio? Do you want to find Montessori? Yeah. Uh, do you want dual immersion, dual, dual language immersion? Um, there's so many different great options, right? And you can find the option that works best for your child and your family. But again, voice and choice. Not everyone is awarded that option, right? Let so- me tell you, I'm glad you said that. I had a conversation today with a friend who is in the military and she called me and she's like, congratulations, Dr. Dallas. And just talking to me. And so I said, and she has a wife. And so I said, well, how, and they just had a baby. Right. And so I said, well, how's everything going? And she's like, great. And I said, well, what, you know, what are you doing? And I always ask her about education. I'm like, what school does she go to? And mm-hmm. she's like, well, I have her to childcare. I have her to Montessori school. And she's at the military child development center. I was like, oh, look at that diversity and so looking at her child and hearing her child you're just like oh you're well-rounded she gets Mm. a little bit of everything everything that education has to offer because her mom has all three of these places because she's military Mm -hmm. and she works a lot but Mm. that's that for me was just like wow wow Mm. not too many kids are privileged to have that and if they yeah. have it, they have it this one time, I'm going to this school, my mom took me out, and then she put me in this school. No, mm-hmm. this child goes through the week, those three different places. Wow. <laughs> and it shows, her education shows. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I talk to like some of some of my nieces and nephews, they, they live in the hood. They live mm-hmm. in the hood and they go to school in the hood. They mm-hmm. go to my old school in the hood. Mm-hmm. I can tell the difference from other kids that, don't go to the schools that I used to go to that my nieces and nephews go to. And why mm-hmm. is that? Just because they live in the hood doesn't mean they have to have this type of education. Mm-hmm. But when you go into the classrooms, you're like, oh, okay. What? It just looks so unnatural. Even though mm-hmm. it's in the hood, it's just like they're stepping into this zone where nothing still, nothing represents them. And the mm-hmm. teachers are so nonchalant and non-caring. They have this mindset that my nieces and my nephews, because they live in the hood and they grew up in the, the projects or they grew up in these bad areas, that's what they're going to be. That doesn't mean mm-hmm. that. That doesn't mean mm-hmm. that. And it, that's not what culturally responsive, relevant, and sustaining pedagogy means. A lot mm-hmm. of people are like, I'm supposed to sustain that they're this or that. No, now you're categorizing them. Now, yes. now you're, being, you're being implicit or explicitly biased. And you're being racist. So yeah. I'm not saying that that's, a, that's what culturally responsive, relevant, and sustaining is. What mm-hmm. it is, is you, the, the child tells you how they want to learn. The child tells you how they learn best when you're incorporating this into the classroom. I'm not saying you have to bring cursing rap music in. Like you said, kids bop. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you have, to, you have to accept that they have these lifestyles in the home. But when they get into your classroom, how can you make them feel comfortable? How can you make them feel loved? How can you, mm-hmm. how can you look at them differently? Cause they don't have on the same shoes as other kids. It's okay. Mm-hmm. That's a shell. How can you tap in deeper into their heart, into their mind to actually incorporate that into the classroom? This is a different world when they step into your classroom, but their culture mm-hmm. still comes with them. Like you said, culture still mm-hmm. comes with them. Don't yeah, label it's me always there. Yeah. Yep. Don't label me. And it's in addition to all of those things too, like it's looking at these children at a deficit right? We're not going in, they're not coming into our presence as these, you know, 
these just vessels of learning, these vessels of, of yeah. possibility of so much that they can be, do, become. We're not looking at these children in this way. We're kind of looking at them as, oh, well, they're growing up in this environment. So that's exactly what they're going to become. It's like, but that's well, what's yeah, happening. Treat them that way. That, but that's what's <laughs> that's happening. the way we think about them. Look at the research. That's what we're doing. Look at the research. Look at the statistics. I'm telling you, it mm -hmm. happens in the Hispanic community as well. It's, mm -hmm. it's just, we expect them to be a certain way or to think a certain way. Or I remember a time, my first year, remember we talked about like our first year was like horrible when we came into education. <laughs> I remember we went to this big parent uh, parent uh, meeting greet to meet mm -hmm. our parents and they could meet us as teachers. And I remember one of the teachers came over to me and she's like, whispered something to me. And she's like, you're not going to understand anything that she says. And so I was like, okay. I was like, why? Because she's speaking Spanish. She's like, no, she speaks broken English. And then I thought like, I speak broken English. Like, <laughs> seriously, like I speak different. I code switch. I learned a code mm -hmm. switch when I came to California. And so I was just thinking, I'm like, okay, well, whatever. So when the parent came over and she was talking to me, I was like, oh, I just every single word she just said. I'm like, mm. what is she, what is this lady talking about? But I understood everything that she said and those things that, that I didn't understand. I asked her to slow down and clarify. She talked really fast like me, but then mm. I, I understood what she meant, where she was coming from, not just from her vocalization and verbalization, but from her body movements. She, mm. she really moved like I move. Like when I get serious, I move my head, my eyes get big. Sometimes I'll bob my head to the left. If, if it's the attitude, I'll bob my head to the right. If it's a laugh. So I, I could, I could identify with her movements and the way that she was. And she was actually Hispanic and African-American, but the teacher told me that she was Hispanic. And so there you go. This is, this is what we have. And it didn't stop with her. Other teachers, when another lady stood up in the room to talk, another teacher grabbed the microphone and said, what she means is, Oh, uh -uh. and I'm like, no, she said what she meant. You understood yeah. what she said. You, you know, like you have mm -hmm. these types of teachers coming into the classroom where how you talk isn't acceptable because mm -hmm. you don't, you don't have that Eurocentric terminology. You don't have that Eurocentric curriculum terminology, but mm -hmm. you understood exactly what I said. Sometimes I'll say words like, like I'm living in Ohio again and people will look mm -hmm. at me and I go, yeah, I said, I said that. Yeah. That's what mm -hmm. I said. You understood that. <laughs> <laughs> but you have that you have that in our classrooms you have these types of teachers that they're they're just like let me correct how you just said that if you could mm. correct how i said it you understood what i said snaps just immediately <laughs> <laughs> so how do we get this how do we get i need that on my wall <laughs> <laughs> i'll put that as my my background on my phone just like there it is <laughs> I'm telling you, my experiences in the classrooms, it's just been interesting. Yes. Interesting. And so we've talked about, um, we've kind of talked about these different layers of culture, right? So we've yes. talked about culture as language, which is really, really important. It's, you know, obviously how we communicate with each other and we're all going to communicate in different ways mm -hmm. and we're all going to find, you know, just different avenues of communication and that might be verbal that might be your body language that just might be the way you're hold you're holding yourself or you know whatever that looks like um and culture is in our music culture is in our food yeah. um and these are all 
excellent ways to incorporate that into our classroom, incorporate these conversations, incorporate, you know, different types of styles of music into it, even styles of dress into it, and just yeah. talk about those types of things. Um, what do we think might be other layers of culture that, you know, we might kind of bypass? Because again, culture is something that is, it's nuanced. There's a lot of nuance to, to culture. Yeah. It's not quite a straight shoot. It's not um, as straightforward as we would prefer for it to be. <laughs> There's a right. lot of nuance and a lot that goes into it. Um, but what are other ways we think in early childhood education, especially that we can look at culture and embrace culture um, and bring that into our classrooms in a way that is, as you say, it's affirming, it's responsive, it's relevant, it's sustaining. Yeah. So um, Zaretta Hammond, Goldie Muhammad, and Shiroki Holly, they wrote books. Zaretta Hammond was culturally responsive in the brain, I believe. Don't quote me on that mm -hmm. one. Um, okay. Goldie Muhammad was cultivating genius and Shiroki Holly was uh, cultivating culturally and linguistically responsive teaching and learning classroom practices. Mm -hmm. So when you think about all three of those other books, right, you have your other mm -hmm. scholars, you have your uh, responsive, relevant, sustaining, but then you have these other aspects. So what Zaretta Hammond is saying is that it's internalized, it's, the, it's in the brain, you know, and then here's the steps to do this. Here's the steps to, to helping the teachers change the environment, change the way that they're thinking, change the curriculum in a way, but it all starts in the brain. And then you have Goldie Muhammad cultivating genius. So Goldie Muhammad is like one of the newest scholars. I really have not really um, in, in gotten really into her book, but she also says something about cultivating yourself, cultivating your life as a teacher. You have to cultivate yourself into that culture. And then mm -hmm. Shirogi Holly says that if you have students, and this, this isn't just what he says, but he's saying, if you have students in your classroom that, that speak Spanish, learn some phrases in Spanish to be able to, to make them feel comfortable. Also, mm -hmm. it's, it's about like the students, you, you were saying we have dual language classrooms where in the classroom we're we're teaching the students English, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we have different dialects. So we have teachers that are in the classroom, they do speak Spanish, but their dialect is different. You have a lot of teachers that say mm -hmm. my, um, my Spanish is broken or I speak, what was it? One of the teachers told me she speaks, um, I forgot, but she basically was telling me that she doesn't really speak Spanish that well, even though she is Hispanic and everyone in her family speaks Spanish. She's like, because of where we came from, our Spanish isn't that well. And so I'm like, mm -hmm. well, you came from, you came from Mexico. She's like, yeah, but because of the, of her history and her family history, their Spanish is a different dialect. So I'm like, there's different dialects of Spanish. So we're telling students, you're coming into this classroom, you're, you're, you're in a dual language classroom where there's English and Spanish spoken, but is the teachers really equipped with that dialect? Yeah. Like, are they really equipped with that version of Spanish that that student needs? So what Shiroki yeah. Holly is saying is that if we're going to do these dual language classrooms, if we're going to have students um, in these dual language classrooms learning to speak English, we have to understand the kind of Spanish that they're speaking, S sustain it, sustain mm -hmm. it, right? Sustain mm -hmm. it and then add to their repertoire. But the teachers have to be on the same page. So you're just putting Spanish speaking teachers in there. You're not really understanding if they, if they're able to reach and teach these students based on the dialect of the Spanish or Mandarin mm -hmm. or however, whatever language it is. So there's so many different components to it. It's not just 
it doesn't just stop at responsive, relevant, and sustaining, right? Yes. There's the little nuances that's in between it. Because Shiroki Howley worked close with Gloria Lasson Billings and mm-hmm. Geneva Gay. And so that's mm-hmm. where he came up with his theory about the linguistics version of it. You have mm-hmm. to you have to incorporate that as well. And he also said something about Ebonics. And this was the first time <laughs> I've ever seen, and it's probably been there, but this is the first time I've ever seen a scholar talk about Ebonics. And I'm like, mm-hmm. wait a minute. I know what that means. I know all these words. That's a... <laughs> But can we really speak that in the classroom? Is that really a dual language? Shiroki Holly's saying yes. It is a yeah. language. But again, we have those teachers that are like, I'm not going to let you walk into my classroom and say, what's up? <laughs> mm-hmm. But I can say, hola. I can say, konnichiwa. Mm-hmm. I can say, swadika. Mm-hmm. Why can't I say, what's up? There's the bias. There's the implicit bias. Yeah. Right? It's there. Yeah. It's there. It's- I've also been hearing a lot of this this kind of con- conversations around was it African American vernacular English the the AAVE um, and you know the more I watch these types of you know videos the more that I kind of hear it it just it feels comforting to me it feels like oh yeah I just feel like I'm at home at a cookout right now <laughs> yeah, like it just so free it feels so freeing and it feels like oh I don't have to enunciate this special way or I don't have to to, to use this particular language and yeah. that's also a part of that identity compulsion of that of I don't have to hide you know as we just said like that code switching mm-hmm. I don't have to hide an aspect of my identity when I'm in certain situations when I'm in you know certain company I get to just talk in a comfortable way I get to just yeah. be who I am and express myself in that way that I don't always get to express yeah and that that says a lot right about how we view certain things and people who are english language learners how they're not viewed as but are you know, we and, all english language learners i, I mean I is mean, that that's an argument right <laughs> we all are english language learners mm-hmm. i believe that i believe we're all i, I believe too i think we're we're you know english is it's an again it's a really hard language <laughs> there's a lot that goes into english and I feel like I'm constantly learning either just new words or I'm learning new ways, or even we're just changing things. We're constantly adding new things to the yeah, dictionary. They just added some you new know, words. They added some new words and syntax and word. Like there's so many different mm-hmm. things that we don't even think about. Yeah. And especially with this conversation around pronouns, it's clear that people don't know what a pronoun actually is. <laughs> so, <laughs> like they're teaching them pronouns in schools. And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's a part of the English language. I don't know what to tell you about. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta pull your kids out of the school if they're talking about pronouns. Like, yeah, you are gonna. Really, yeah, they have a lot to say about that. I just stay out that conversation. I'm like, hey, that's that's y'all. Y'all can have that. <laughs> a lot of uh, the other day, I called my professor. I'm like, girl, just like that deep girl, like you know, like girl. She was like, uh, hello. Hello, this is Doctor. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Whoops, my bad. Forgot to switch. Let me code switch back to you. <laughs> I made a mistake. <laughs> sorry, we're in academia. My bad. Let me right. rewind a little. <laughs> we even need it in our universities, but I'm not saying in my papers I'm going to be like, you know, talking mm-hmm. my vernacular. I'm just saying like sometimes these we ask so much of a person 
you can only fake the funk for so long so it's just like okay yeah. let me free let me out it's like being closed in this tight shirt zipped up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well I don't want to take up too much of your time but I could talk to you for literal hours so. <laughs> I'll come back I'll come back <laughs> Come on back because I, I have so many other questions. I feel like we only scratched the surface. Yes. Yeah, um, but the last question I have for you is the question that I want to ask all of my guests. Um, and that is, how do you reimagine education? What does the future of education look like to you? I think the future of education is less structured, more authentic, very inclusive, incorporating a culturally responsive, relevant, and sustaining pedagogy and blended, blended. Mm. And in aspects of incorporating lots of linguistics into our classrooms where it's not just English, it's not just Spanish, mm. but it's other, other languages. And the teachers mm. are speaking different languages and they've had these types of trainings to help them teach and reach students. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's how I see it. I love it. Let's get crispy in schools. Right? <laughs> Bring it on. (laughs) Bring it on. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Dallas, for joining me today on the Conscious Pathways podcast. Um, I honestly look forward to having you on again and just deepening these conversations. Um, Yeah, this has been amazing. Yes, I agree. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. I'll come back anytime. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Conscious Pathways podcast. Don't forget to join us on Instagram to join the conversation. And we'll see you next week for more transformative conversations in education. Bye.